Good morning. Take your time. Wrap it up slow. No, no need to rush. No need to rush. It's all good. Love it when you hang out and chat a little bit. If, if you're online, we're glad you're here. And a reminder, we're going we're to take communion before the morning's over. And so that's why all this is here and we're good uh, to spend some time together doing that. If you're here in the room, there's some communion stuff in front of you, and uh, we'll be getting after that. But if you're at home, then uh, take a few moments. Be sure you have your elements gathered. That would be great. It's good to be back with you. I've been out for a few weeks. We'll talk just a little bit about that. If you didn't get a chance to hear Donna, my wife, teach uh, last week, and you can hop online and watch. Uh, She's such a teacher, and she did a great job. Um, I've been recovering a bit from an illness, unexpectedly. And so Donna spent some time over the last two, three weeks uh, nursing me back to health. She's a nurse. Then she also spent some time working her job as a nurse. And then she showed up and did my job last week on Sunday. And she's really something. So um, it's what we call marrying up, I think, is the the phrase. So, yeah. It's been a a busy couple weeks around here between senior trip, uh, all of this stuff, you know, I mean, the, the stage was filled uh, last week. This is just a remnant and some out there as well. In, in fact, if you weren't here this week to see the, the parking lot, I mean, this entire facility and our property was turned into an adventure camp with climbing walls and the whole deal. And so Diana McKeever, our worship, our children's pastor, excuse me, she's doing an incredible job. And so if you see her, you can thank her. I think she's here today taking care of some kids upstairs. And so you can clap for her now if you want. But... Um, you know, she, she can't hear you for the roar of your kids. And so you'll want to thank her and pat her on the back and just encourage her a bit. Encourage Mike too. This resiliency faith issue is a big deal. And so uh, I, I would love what's happening with our student ministry and how Mike is teaching them how to make their faith their own. And it kind of fits into where we're headed with the message. Our hope for the summer is that you would have a chance Uh, to have a verse or two that are meaningful, maybe resonates with you, or allows you to think about your faith in a different way. As you re-engage with your life, as you get back involved and maybe go into the office again, or building new friendships again, or even as you just try to push forward in your own way, our hope is that these verses will be something you can cling to and hang on to. Verses that will be markers for your faith and help you remember and know why you do what you do, why you live the way you live, and why you have made God the center of all things. And even if you find yourself on a given day when God isn't the center of all things, it will then help you be a bit of a compass, a true north, that you can kind of return to the path again. And that's our hope. And so today's verse may do that for you. So over the last couple weeks, as I've been kind of recovering, I've spent a lot of time on the couch and uh, watched a few movies that I haven't gotten to watch lately, and even some stuff that I didn't even know was out there, and just enjoying that a little bit, and getting better, feeling better. One of the movies I stumbled on, I'm I'm a sucker for a good golf movie, and so I don't know if you like golf movies or not. I'd never really heard of this, Seven Days in Utopia, uh, but I watched it. It was good. It's a good movie. Um, Lucas Black, he plays this golfer, up-and-comer, you know, he's in his first pro tournament, and he has a a bit of a meltdown on the last hole, and this is sort of the catalyst of the movie. And, uh, and then Robert Duvall comes along, and he's kind of his Mr. Miyagi and kind of helps him find his way back to his golf game. It's, it's a good story. It's really the heart of golf because the, the meltdown is really the thing in golf. It's, it's the thing that makes golfers like me and probably you, if you play at all, 
make you think that you can play golf. Because you watch a pro golfer and, and he totally goes tin cup. You know, if you've seen that movie, you know what I mean? And, and this meltdown occurs and you think, I, I could play better than that. And anytime you watch somebody like uh, Honor, Honor, Honor Palmer or, you know, Tom Weisskopf, we'll give an example of him in a minute. Anytime you watch some of these golfers and you think, well, I can play better than him. On this given hole, you start to think, I can play. And it gives us hope. Meltdown is such a piece of lore in golf, but it's a piece of lore because it's real. And it happens on live TV in front of us. In 1980, Tom Weisskopf was playing in the Masters. Came up upon the 12th hole at Augusta. The the 12th hole at Augusta is about 150 yards, depending on where they put the the tees. It's a little green. It's par three. You could par it. Tom Weisskopf gets up with his seven iron. Right in front of the green on this 12th hole at Augusta is an infamous piece of, of landscape called Ray's Creek. And Tom Weiskopf tees off, dumps it right into Ray's Creek. Then he proceeds to the drop area, drops a ball, and for the next four shots, dumps four more balls into Ray's Creek while everyone watches. That day, Tom Weiskopf carded a 13 on the 12th hole at Augusta. The next day, he was out of contention. He's really just playing through until he can get back on his jet and go to the next tournament. He gets up at the 12th hole again, hits his tee shot right into Ray's Creek. That day, he carded a seven on a par three. This this meltdown happens, and we all watch. We can't believe it's happening, but secretly, we're a little bit giddy inside because we think... I guess they're human like us. And it happens over and over again. In fact, that's not even the worst one. Probably one of the worst happened here in the Denver area. In 1938, uh, Cherry Hills Country Club hosted the U.S. Open. And Ray Ainsley was playing in in the U.S. Open. And during one of the rounds, he came up to the 16th hole. The 16th hole there at, at Cherry Hills Country Club, similar to the 12th at Augusta, except it's not a par three. There's a green and there's a creek right in front of it. Ray Ainsley hit his approach shot short right into the creek. He walked up to the creek, saw his ball in the creek, moving water over the ball, and his thought was, I don't want to take a drop, so I'm sure that I can hit out of this. So he took his club, rolled up his pants, climbed into the creek, and took a swing. Missed the ball, took another swing, hit the water, missed the ball, That day, Ray Ainsley wrote a 19 on his scorecard. One of the reporters heard a little girl say to her mom, she was in the gallery, a little girl said, I don't know what was in the water, but I guess it's dead now because he's quit hitting it. (laughs) The meltdown. That's the story in Seven Days in Utopia. Lucas Black, he has a meltdown and ends up in this little town, this real town in Texas called Utopia, Texas. And like I said, Robert Duvall becomes his Mr. Miyagi and, and helps him sort out his game and, and figure out his way. The very first day of their lessons, there's an exchange between him and Duvall that made me think about the verse that we'll learn today and why it matters, how important it is. It's better if you hear him say it himself, so let's just watch for a minute. 
Why do you grip the club that way? I don't know. It just feels good. Well, that's the wrong answer. Now, uh, let's start from scratch, all right? I need to know why you do the things you do. Like uh, the foundation for your swing, from the grip to the follow-through. Now, go think about it and write it down. The first step in finding a good game is to find some conviction. You got that? Think about it. So this young golfer begins to find his way, but he only does so because of the instruction and the advice of this old sage golfer who begins to tell him initially one of the most important things he'll ever learn. The first step to finding a good game is to find some what? Why do you do it? Why do you do it the way you do it? Because the truth is, if you decide you're going to grip the club a certain way, you ought to understand why your thumb is along what line, how you've put your hands around it. Because when it gets difficult, when you begin to doubt yourself, when things begin to fly apart and you're on the 18th hole and you're in contention, you're going to begin wondering whether you should grip it a different way. Maybe you should try a shot you've never, ever practiced. Why do you do it the way you do it? And so he has them, not swing more, but sit down with a notebook and begin to write out the reasons why. Because when things get tough, when things get hard, it's only convictions that will see you through. It's only the things that you're absolutely sure of, the things that you're certain of. These are the things that will help you find your way. So the verse that's important for today that I hope you'll carry with you and maybe even decide you'll do some things this week with comes from John chapter 6, verse 29. This is what it says. Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. It seems so simple. In fact, let's just say it together, okay? Uh, say it with a little conviction, okay? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Now, at face value, it seems like a straightforward verse, but I think it's one of the most surprising things that Jesus ever said. When we think about the work of God, you and I can think of a, a dozen different things that we think comprises the work of God, whether it's feeding the poor, taking care of those around us, telling people about Jesus, giving to the church, all the different things that you and I would call good Christian, thoughtful, Jesus-following activities, we would say, that seems to me like the work of God. But Jesus backs up from that, and he says, that's not the work of God. In fact, some of you are so good at doing what appears to be the work of God that you've forgotten the most basic, foundational, and fundamental work that Jesus says this. The work is to believe. That's the work. In fact, this is the hard work of following God is to believe. I mean, you can act like a Christian all day long. You can even do Christian things, even for Christian purposes. But what Jesus says is that when it comes down to it, the hardest work that you will ever do is to believe. And I've come to understand that this is true. Jesus answered, the work of God is this, 
to believe in the one he has sent. Now this verse, it comes in the middle of John chapter 6. You know, we've, we've added the, the chapter numbers and the verse numbers. Hopefully we've grouped them nicely into, you know, chapters and ideas and paragraphs, thoughts that make sense to be grouped together. And this verse comes in the middle of a whole bunch of things that happen around it. And so I, what I want to do is just give you an overview, a, a flyover. You know how when you're watching golf, anybody watch golf? When I want to take a nap, I watch golf. But for the first like 10 minutes, I get to watch a little golf and then drift off to sleep. You know, they'll give you a flyover of the hole. They'll take you from the tee. Somebody's flown a, dro a, dr a drone over the hole and giving you a view of it. This is what I'm going to do for John chapter 6 for just for a moment, just to give you the context of it. You know most of the chapter. You've heard some of the stories. You might not know how they fit together. At the beginning of John chapter 6, Jesus feeds a large crowd of people. 5,000 men probably, several thousand more were probably present. But Jesus has been teaching. His popularity is growing. Crowds follow him everywhere. They want to hear what he has to say. They're all mostly Jewish men and women looking for a rabbi that will point them to God. And they love what Jesus says. They love how he teaches. He has done incredible things and his popularity is surging. And so lots of people are around. And on this given day, many people have followed him. The restaurants are closed and nobody, nobody's got food handy nearby that they know about. And Jesus has this crowd and it's nearing the end of the day. And he looks at one of his disciples, his name's Philip. And he says to Philip, kind of off to the side, well, that's a lot of people. How could we feed all of them? They're all gonna need some food. And John writes that, Jesus knew what he was going to do, but he said this to test Philip. Look, just a little aside, you can keep this or toss it away, whatever you want. If you are of the impression that God doesn't test you, then you haven't read the scriptures. God absolutely tests us. Now, is it pass-fail? I don't know. Does he keep a grade book? I have no idea. But why does he do it? So that we can find out the substance of our faith. What's really there? What's going to remain when things get tough? How do we make it through difficult times? And so he just wanted to put a little tester out to Philip. About that time, Andrew walks up, Simon's brother, and says, well, there's a little boy here, and he's got some lunch. I mean, it's not going to go very far. And maybe you know the story. Jesus takes that food, and he multiplies it, and he feeds all these people They've been there for the teaching, and now they get their fill of food. It's a pretty powerful miracle that Jesus does. And after he does that, they're kind of done for the day. The very next thing that happens is Jesus walks on the water. Now, this story is told after the day of teaching the disciples. I don't know why they do this. They get in a boat to head across the Sea of Galilee to a town called Capernaum. Normally, they're always hanging out with Jesus, but for some reason, they go on ahead of him for whatever reason. While they're out there, a storm kicks up and it gets kind of dicey out on the sea and Jesus goes out to meet them. He doesn't take a boat though. He just takes his feet. He can do that. You know, he's Jesus. And so he meets them out there. He calms the storm and they go on across the lake. It's a powerful story about faith and trust. And then the crowd, the very next morning, wakes up and they knew that the disciples left without Jesus and they knew that Jesus isn't there on their side of the lake. And so they thought, what's going on? Something miraculous happened again. Maybe we didn't see it all. But Jesus is doing some pretty interesting things. We need to go find him. And so they pursue Jesus across the lake. They go all the way across and they find him. Then they find Jesus on the other side of the lake. And they say to Jesus, Rabbi, 
They're saying, you know, you're our teacher. They don't use it as a as just an identifying term. It's an affectionate, surrendered term when they call him rabbi. They say, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus says one of the most interesting things. He knows why the crowd has come. He knows why the crowd has followed him. And so he begins to call them out. Now, what happens next in John chapter 6, if you could take five minutes and read the whole chapter, you'll see it all for yourself. A very interesting exchange between Jesus and this crowd of people. His disciples are there too, but there's a big crowd as well. These are the people, not all of them probably, but most of them were there when Jesus fed them the day before. So Jesus looks at them all and he says this, you did not come and find me because you believe in me. You came and found me because I fed you lunch. It kind of stings. Wouldn't that sting to you? I mean, this isn't just a sideshow. They're Jewish men and women seeking to become more godly. And Jesus calls out their motive and just lays it bare, just tears it right open. And he says, you didn't come find me because you believe in me. You came and found me because you had your fill and you want more. How often is that true of us? That we come after God because we believe he can fix us, take care of our deal, sew this relationship back together, help us find our way, keep us out of hell. Whatever it is we're afraid of or whatever it is that we want most, how often do we use God as this sort of vending machine where we think, you know, if I put in the right amount of whatever, you know, and hit the right button, something good will come out, a restored marriage, obedient kids, a successful business. And Jesus calls us out in John chapter six and he says, careful, you didn't come after me because you believe in me. You came after me because I have something that you want and you believe I'm the only way that you'll get it. And then Jesus, he gives a confusing sermon on purpose. Jesus begins to lay down a teaching that is obtuse. It's just completely unbelievable to the Jewish mind. He talks about things like a blood and, and flesh and consuming them. It's, it's, if you didn't have the gospel in mind, if you didn't know the story of the cross and the death and the burial and resurrection, if you didn't have even communion in mind, then you would read John chapter 6 and think, he's a raving lunatic. And if you heard what Jesus had to say with a first century Jewish mind, you would be absolutely certain that he's gone off the deep end. And that's what they think. And so the scriptures then explain in John chapter 6 that many of those who were listening, well, they decide to look for another rabbi. They want to know God, but they can't handle what Jesus has said. They want to pursue him. They want to follow him. But what he has said and what he's brought to the table right now is just too much for them. And they can't deal with it. I believe Jesus did this on purpose. And I believe he does this to me and you on purpose. Sometimes what happens to us is more than we can handle or bear. And to believe that God had a hand in it or even allowed it or goodness sakes, maybe caused it is just more than we can handle and we push God away. We say, oh, I can't deal with a God that would allow this or cause it. I don't want anything to do with him. And so we push and we put some distance. We might even 
look for another rabbi or desert God altogether. This is what happens with Jesus and some of the people that are following. And so what becomes very clear when you watch John 6 play out is this truth, this axiom that I think describes my life, your life, and even the disciples in John chapter 6, and it's this. A belief is an idea until it's tested. A belief that you have about who God is and how he operates, it's something that you're trying on for size. You kind of put it on like you would a new set of shoes or a coat or a jacket or jeans, and you think, how does this fit? How does it feel? Am I going to take it with me? Is it something I want to use? And then life happens, and it's tested. And when this idea is tested, you decide whether you're going to keep it, make it your own, or set it aside and decide it's worthless and useless. An idea. That's all a belief is until life happens to you. And then you have to decide, is this going to get me through or not? So two weeks ago, we got back from our vacation uh, from uh, Miami and the Keys and Don and I, we had a blast. Two days after we got back, I began to spike a little fever and we thought, what's this? We don't know what this is. So I got tested, you know, a couple things and wasn't that. And then the fever remained. We thought, oh, it's kidney something or another. We had no idea. Talked to a couple doctors, got a prescription and it just continued. This fever persisted. It wasn't until the next Monday that we found ourselves at the ER after my doc said, well, you've got a couple symptoms that seem kind of strange. You should go get checked. So we hopped in the truck just to run to the ER real quick, and I thought, this will be quick. We'll be home for dinner. We sat down. They ran tests, six tests, seven tests, eight tests. Finally, the doc, after asking us several questions, several conversations, came back in for the, one of the last conversations we would have with this ER doc, and he popped in, and he said, your kidneys are fine. No worries there. Everything's good there, but... And then he lowered his voice, had a stack of papers of all these tests in his hands. He said, you're a very sick man. Some bacterial infection had taken hold. I blame it on Florida. You know, everything grows in Florida. It's weird. It's not right. Five days in the hospital while they tried to sort out what kind of infection I had. Now, it's in a moment like that when you begin to ask the question, what do I think about this? Who do I trust? What do I believe? Who is taking care of me? Who is my physician? Is God at work here? It's the crisis in your life that will determine whether or not a belief is going to take root or you're going to cast it aside. What crisis has it been for you? Relationship falling apart, joblessness, income loss, betrayal. A belief is an idea until it's tested. Here's the second part of the axiom, and it's true. Then it's either cast aside or it becomes a what? A conviction. A conviction is the only thing that will see you through a tough time. A conviction is the only thing that will help you find your way when you're not sure there is anything worth clinging to. The beliefs that you and I have about who God is and how he works, what his grace is like, how forgiveness happens, 
how God wants us to live and be and relate in this world. The beliefs we have, when they're tested, they're either cast aside or they become convictions. This is why Jesus said, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. I believe the hardest work you'll ever do in your faith is to believe. When you believe, everything else flows from it. I mean, whether you're going to feed the poor, take care of the sick, all the things that you think a good Christian ought to do, it flows from belief. Make no mistake, you can do good things without belief, but they flow from only the strongest of beliefs that will bring good fruit. The hardest work you will ever do as a follower of Jesus is to believe and to believe in the face of things that tell you that the opposite is true. So here's the question. What do you believe? And why do you believe it? Is that just because of the way you were raised? Because of what somebody else told you? Is it because you spent time in Scripture and wrestled with the truth? The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Great moment in the movie when Duval throws this notebook at this young golfer and says, write it down. Tell me why. It's the best work that any follower of Jesus could ever do. Why do you believe it? What are you sure of? And if you're anything like me or anybody else that's ever drawn breath, what you believe today is different than where you were five years ago or 10 years ago, and it will be different in five years and 10 years. Your belief, your faith is going to evolve over time, guaranteed. But what do you believe now? What do you believe to be true? How has it changed and why? How is God active and involved in how your faith is developing? This is the work of God to believe. Because the crisis that has happened, the crisis that is coming, whatever it is that you're going through, what will be attacked will not be your actions. It won't be the good things that you do. You can do good things any day of the week. What will be attacked is what you believe to be true. And so when Donna and I are in the hospital trying to wrestle with what's going on and where's this infection and can they get ahead of it, and we have questions about life and death and whether or not they're able to take care of this or not, we all know stories of people who had an infection that they just couldn't get a handle on and the worst occurred. And so we're wondering about some of the biggest questions you can wrestle with in a very dark place. And the question that we have is, well, what do we believe about this? Where is God in it? How is he at work? What do we believe about life and death and eternity and why we're here the work of God is to believe in the one that he sent. Not too long after this happens, John chapter 6, John unfolds the gospel, and as it gets near the end of Jesus' life, interesting thing occurs. He has a few friends that aren't normally his, uh, you know, the 12 disciples. These few friends are two sisters, Mary and Martha, and they have a brother, his name Lazarus. And Lazarus gets sick. So the sisters call for Jesus. They send word that, hey, Lazarus is sick. Your buddy is sick. Why don't you come and, and help us? And so word comes to Jesus, and he begins to make his way kind of slowly to the little town of Bethany where this family lives. And so while Jesus is on his way, Lazarus dies. 
Mary and Martha hear that Jesus is almost there. Mary stays home, but Martha comes out to the road to meet Jesus. And she comes to Jesus. His disciples are with them. They're on their way into town. And Mary sees Jesus and begins to weep. Jesus begins to weep. Martha has this conversation with Jesus. She says, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Jesus looks at her and says, your brother will rise again. And she says, I know he's going to rise again the way everybody rises again. You know, she just kind of blows off his statement. And then Jesus looks at her and this is what he says. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me, what does it say? will never die. And then he says to her, do you believe this? I've got the same question for you. Do you believe this? Now, anybody who's got faith that's worth a nickel, anybody who's been through anything in life will say, sometimes. Sometimes. I mean, that's hard to believe when push comes to shove and when life gets real and when the friction begins. But this is the question that we wrestle with. Because if this is true, and if what Jesus said was true, that the work of God is to believe in the one he has sent, then when it comes to you and I and how we handle our finances, we'll allow this to be operative in our life. When it comes to our life choices and how we're going to spend our time or our energy, when it comes to our priorities, how we align ourselves or how we're going to invest in this or in that or how we build relationships, all kinds of things, there are implications that affect every corner of our lives, then we will decide that we do believe this, it is true. And if so, then our faith goes through a testing. And what emerges is a conviction. And the conviction remains even when we find ourselves facing uncertainty, pain, struggle, loss, or even death. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. So what do you believe and why? Oh, well, I know, I know it's a, it's a broad question, isn't it? It's, it's a huge question. But it's a question that you ought to wrestle with. It's a question that you ought to take a pen or a pencil and put to paper and write some things down about what you believe. Because when you find yourself in a hospital room with your kid, you need to have the conviction that God is, in fact, benevolent, loving, and kind, and he's in charge, and you can trust him with the life of someone that you love. When you find yourself empty-pocketed, unsure of how to pay your bills, the fact that God is your provider will come rushing back and bring you peace that you didn't know was even possible. Does all that sound like something that would bring you peace and stability in turbulent times. That's exactly what God intended. 
the little speech that Jesus gave in John 6, it was all about the, the flesh and the blood. It makes sense to us because of the communion meal that we take. And if you have the elements in front of you, you should pull them out and get ready. The little cup that you have, if you're here in the room, it's got a little layer that you peel back and there's a piece of bread. And then another layer that you'll peel back and there's some juice. And we will take communion in unison together. And as we do so, we hope that those of you that are at home and online will join us in the very same thing, knowing that we are one body. So while you have that ready, in John 6, Jesus talks to them about flesh and blood. They didn't understand it. Something's happened in your life lately that you didn't understand. And faith and belief means that you and I are willing to say, Lord, I have no idea what you're up to, but I trust you. I have no understanding of why I'm sitting here in this hospital bed, but I trust you. I hope I get out, but I trust you. Lord, I don't know what you're doing. It's, it's cloaked for me, but we trust you. The people in John 6 that didn't understand why Jesus would tell good Jewish men and women who would never even touch blood to consume blood, let alone flesh, what Jesus wanted them to say is we have no idea what you just said, but we trust you. Well, that's what Peter said. You can read it yourself in John 6. All of these disciples, they turned and they walked away, many of them, and who was left but a small group of men and women. One of them was Peter. And Jesus looked at him and said, you guys want to leave too? And Peter just looked at Jesus and said, where else are we going to go? You have the words of life. And so his trust in Jesus was solidified when he said, I don't know what you said earlier about the flesh and blood, but we're here. And so maybe today you need to say before God, I have no idea what you're doing in my life right now, but I'm here. I have no idea what you're up to. It's pretty darn confusing to me. I would do it differently if I were in charge. But I'm here. And I surrender to you. So you can take the bread in your hands the way Jesus did in the meal. And he held up the bread and he said, this is my body, it's broken for you. And so he took the bread, he handed it to his friends the way he hands it to us today. And they took it and they ate it. Let's do that together. And then Jesus took a cup of wine and he held this wine up in front of his friends and he said, this cup represents a new covenant. That's a new arrangement between us and God. Your connection, your relationship with God isn't based on your obedience or your ability to be good or even operate your life according to Levitical law or the sacrificial system. Your connection to God is based on one thing and one thing only, the righteousness of Jesus. You are made clean and whole and pure through the death of Jesus on the cross. And he said, this blood represents that covenant and it's poured out for you for the forgiveness of your sins. 
And so we pass the cup among his friends the way we have a cup among us today and all of us online as well. And he says, take and drink it, each of you. And so we drink it today. These are the the gifts of God for the people of God. And so, Lord, we receive this today. And we declare that you are good. We declare that we can trust you. Lord, we surrender to you. And as we celebrate this communion meal, we recognize that we understand it today, but only because we have the gospel in front of us, that we are just as confused as the people in John chapter six about so many things that we do not know. What you're up to, you are mysterious. You are God. So we surrender to you and we say, we don't get it. We don't understand, but we're here. And we wanna surrender to you. So teach us, lead us. Where else would we go? You have the words of life. And so we declare truth with these lyrics right now, Lord. These are some things that we believe and we declare them. Some days we doubt, but today we declare them as truth. Some days we're unsure, but we pray that these truths would grow deep within us and give us roots to help us stay strong. That our beliefs would not just be ideas, but they would be formed into convictions. Just like these words that we sing. Lord, be present now and hear us.